Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer, Susan Slusser, and today we are happy to welcome in Agent Rachel Luba, who is the subject of a uh, major San Francisco Chronicle profile this week, and like myself, a Monterey native and a graduate of Stevenson High School in Pebble Beach, so it was extra fun for me to talk to Rachel. Rachel, welcome. Um, You are unusual in the sports agent world. There are only a handful of women agents. Um, Certainly, I think a lot of people are familiar with Lonnie um, and Lonnie Murray and... um, I know Sharice has been an agent for a long time, but you're you're one of the few. Tell us a little bit about how you came to decide to be an agent. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I, you know, it's been a long, long time coming that I've been working towards this, um, probably close to 10 years now. Um, But I think, I, you know, as a gymnast growing up, um, and I was always... um, drawn towards the individual athlete, probably largely because I did an individual sport. And so I always knew I wanted to work with somehow with the individual athlete. Um, so when I got to UCLA, uh, I really started thinking more and more about it. And this, you know, idea of being an agent seemed very appealing and kind of ended up setting my sights on baseball. And it kind of started there. As a former gymnast, uh, how much does your own athletic career kind of influence what you do, you know, in your job and in your life? Uh, I, a lot. Um, I think, I mean, one, just in terms of the sacrifices that are required to get to, you know, a, a certain level. Uh, there's a lot. Obviously, the sacrifices that, you know, a gymnast makes is going to be much earlier on in their life and basically in their childhood um, because they end up peaking by their teens. But, but the sacrifices were still most definitely there. Um, but then, you know, there's a lot of kind of carryover, um, you know, things that I've learned as a gymnast that I continue to use in my daily life. And I think another really important um, lesson that I learned as as a gymnast was just being okay with failure. Um, Gymnastics is a sport that you literally fail your way to success. You fall on your face literally over and over again until you finally get a skill right. And so, you know, the idea of failing has never really scared me. Um, It's kind of something that I view as a part of the process in order to succeed. So I think that's always, lend it it's always allowed me to kind of um, set my sights on things that might seem kind of outlandish or that are going to be difficult to achieve because I've never really feared the failure um, along the way so I talked to some of your former teachers on the peninsula and um, it, it sounds like you are somebody who's always been extremely driven, extremely organized, uh, and, and pretty intense, starting from when you were, like, really little, whenever your teachers told me that you <laughs> you made these spectacular lunches for yourself when you were five, which is, I mean, is that true? Did you, were you, like, climbing up on <laughs> counters and grabbing stuff off of shelves and packing your own perfect little lunches? Yeah. 
Yeah, so both my parents, um, well, my, my dad's a gastroenterologist, my mom's a dentist, she had her own pra- they both have their own practices, and they have four kids, um, and we're all, like, exactly a year apart, um, all born in the summer, um, so, you know, and we all did sports, like, individual sports, so my parents had their hands full, um, you know, they have their practices to run, and then four kids and we're all basically the same age so it was kind of like you know we'll we'll get you to school and we'll get you to your sport after school um but you got to learn to like fend for yourself in a lot of ways um and so lunches were included and I hated it I hated that I had to pack my own lunch but because I was like I, I used to always come home and tell my parents, I'm like, you know, everyone else, like, their parents pack their lunch. And they're like, that's fine, but you're going to pack it. If you want to eat, you got to pack your own lunch. So I, you know, had to learn at a young age. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, but, you know, helpful. You know, there are lots of kids that get to college and have no idea how to make anything or do their laundry. So you are way ahead of the game there, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm my parents to thank for that. Exactly. Um, so growing up in Northern California, I know your focus was on gymnastics and, and academics and other things, but were you a sports fan growing up? And if so, which teams do you follow? And again, I want to emphasize this is the A's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I do like the A's. Um, I will, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Uh, first of all, gymnastics was pretty much my whole life, and so I couldn't, uh, I didn't have as much time to enjoy other sports. However, I definitely, I definitely rooted for my brothers. I think we all rooted for uh, the 49ers and, you know, for the Giants. The A's we did, I think it kind of split between, if the A's were having a really good season you know we'll root for the A's but um we tended to be more Giants fans um but my brother my youngest brother was actually an extra in Moneyball no and and so he got all this really cool A's gear and I remember being so excited when he brought it home um and so there was a period where I wore all the jackets and cool stuff he got for the A's for a while. That's so funny. What was he like in the crowd? What What did he do for Moneyball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. He was he was in the stands, so they gave him they decked everyone out with all the um you know like A's jackets and things like that. So it was pretty cool for him. Oh, that's so funny. That's I mean I people who listen to this podcast a lot or have read um, my second book probably have heard me talk about this a little bit, but. The one thing that they did in the press box when the media was actually there was hilarious. They wouldn't let us into the press box for a few minutes. We're staying there waiting, and they're like, okay, we're done. We walked in. They'd been filming a scene in the writer's press box, uh, and all the you know extras that were supposed to be reporters were wearing like coats and ties, and one of them even had a fedora. And I was like, you guys know this was set in 2002, right? Like this, this didn't happen yeah. in the 1950s. It's, and like, and it was all white guys, all like middle-aged white guys. I was like, uh, pretty much all the A's beat writers are women, people of color. We're wearing t-shirts and jeans. So, oh, that cracked me up. I was like, they took, they took so much care with like the signage in the outfield and stuff to make sure everything like the exact same right score was right for that day and stuff. Right. And I was like, you didn't bother to look in a press right. box. They didn't, yeah, do a little research to... <laughs> Yeah. Hilarious. But yeah, the demographic. Oh, yeah. it made me laugh. Um, so, uh, 
so you decided, um, you know, at some point that you're interested in being an agent you, and mm-hmm. you're at UCLA, you know, a lot of the baseball players, you're friendly with Trevor Bauer. And after Trevor gets drafted, he takes you to meet his agent because he knows you're interested in being an agent yeah. yourself. That to me was an amazing story. Tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I sat down with his agent, um, kind of told him, and I think Bauer told him a little bit about, you know, what, what my interests were. And, you know, everyone always recommends you, you know, talk to people in the industry where you think you want to work just to get a feel for the people that actually work in it. So I was really looking forward to this. Um, sat down in his office. He um, looked at me, put his feet up on his desk, leaned back, you know, hands behind his head, and was like, "All right, well, seems seems like you think you know what you want to do, so I'm not going to sugarcoat it." And so I was pretty excited. And he was like, "You're a girl," and just stared at me. And then I just stared at him, and it was an awkward, you know, silence. Um, and I was like, "That's yeah, I'm." I'm well aware. Uh, and he was just like, well, what I'm saying is like, you're not really welcome in the industry. And then at this point, you're just like, uh, okay, is that it? He's like, well, I'm not saying, you know, that, that you can't do it, but the reality is, is like, it's just, it's a boys club. And, you know, that's, it's just kind of how it is. And at that moment, um, I, I think it, I'm not sure what he thought, um, it, the impact that that had on me, but for me, really, it was, that was like, all right, I'm going to do this, um, cause this guy thinks I can't. And, you know, I told him, I was like, is that, all right, is that it? Like, that's all the advice you've got. Um, and he's like, well, if you want any credibility at all, you should at, like, at the very least, you're going to have to have a law degree. I was like, okay. And it was a pretty brief, uh, conversation after that. And I walked out of there, and I, I remember, like, I texted my parents. So I was like, I'm going to apply to law school. And they that was the first they had ever heard of that. And But that's exactly what I went and did. Um, but it was, I think, you know, a lot of – my, my family knows this, and my brothers from growing up and, you know, my coaches in gymnastics. I'm very much a kind of you have to use reverse psychology on me a lot of times. And it – you know, someone tells me I can't do something, it's exactly what I'm going to set my my sights on. And so that's probably largely what really solidified it for me right there. Yeah, that's, um, I talked to your friend Brendan Walsh for this piece, as, as you know, and he said, like, mm-hmm. if you tell Rachel no, she's going to try even harder. So, like, if that's, yeah. if that's not what you want... Don't say no. Um, it's funny yeah. because um, yeah. when I was coming out of college, I really wanted to be a baseball play-by-play announcer, and people kept telling me no. And I, I, I was just like, okay, well, you know, you're a woman, you can't do it. And so I actually, unlike you, I was like, all right, I'll do something else. Um, but there's a part of me that really wishes that I had just stuck with it and stuck it out. So um, I am, I am very impressed with that, and I wish I had uh, more of your kind of like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove you wrong. But you've kind of keep kept having to do that because. As you try to get a job after you get out of law school, um, tell us about, you know, I know you interned at Beverly Hills Sports Council, but then you start looking for jobs with agencies. And, and how did things go from there? Yeah, not not great. So, um, I mean, like you kind of said um, earlier, I was always, since I was little, I think I was always viewed as 
um, being a very driven kind of uh, determined person and I was always you know setting my sights on you know really big things and um, whether I would achieve them or not you know everyone that was anybody's guess but everyone knew like that's how I was and then you know I graduated from UCLA a year early um, I graduated from law school a semester early um, I was always kind of you know like trying to be like ahead of the game and then I graduated law school so a semester early and suddenly and then I passed the bar and suddenly I had no job and I was a lawyer with nothing and my parents it was like a good six month period where I didn't know what I was going to do I was just like I'm determined to break into baseball and I kept interviewing and trying to talk to agents and it was like every door just kind of kept getting slammed in my face and my parents were like for the first time really like what are you doing with your life like are you even going to be doing anything are you just gonna you know like are, are you going to get any job um or are you just going to sit here and and it was kind of hard to tell people or tell my parents too of look like I'm I'm trying but I can't email agents every single day you know begging them to give me a job like sometimes I just kind of have to wait and so it was this weird period where um you know, no one would really pull the trigger on it because they all thought my gender was, it was really polarizing one way or the other, whether it made me unique and set, it could possibly set an agency apart. Um, some viewed it like that, but wouldn't pull the trigger on it. Others were like, would tell me straight up to my face, you have no chance. Like, there's no way that anyone's gonna, you know, you're too young to, you know, the way you look, it's, it's not going to work. And so it was pretty, um, I definitely got to a point, um, where I was really discouraged and started kind of second guessing myself too. Um, because it was just, you always, there's always something I could, you know, that I had my sights set on, um, you know, through my whole childhood and through school, it was like, okay, well, there's a next step I can take, you know, I go to law school, things like that. And this was like the first time where I was just like, I just, I have to keep trying, but I don't know what else, like, there's no, there's no more school or anything to keep, you know, adding to my resume at this point. It was just like, you know, like you have to find a way to break in. So it was a long, um, you know, six month period, but I ended up convincing, um, uh, very respected expert agent advisor. So he's, he's like a lawyer that agents hire him to help with arbitration cases, things like that. I ended up convincing him to let me build him um, a database for all past arbitration cases. And then really realized that if I can become an expert in uh, salary arbitration, then I can really set myself a part in this industry because it's a very unique process that most agents don't really even know much about. Um, so once I was in it, I was able to do that, um, which was just like, you know, a little side project that he paid me a little money for, but you know, and I did it out of, you know, my parents' house. And, uh, once I did that, it ended up helping me get a job with the union as a lawyer doing salary arbitration there. And then it just kind of all, ended up falling into place after that but there was a good six month period where I think 
I doubted myself. My parents doubted me. Everyone was like, what's happening? Oh, that's, that's crazy. I, you know, it, you, you mentioned when we talked that when you went to the union as a lawyer, well, first of all, you'd applied for an yeah. internship at the union and yeah. did not get it. And then they hired you as a lawyer, yeah. which is hilarious. <laughs> I, yeah, I was so, I still give them a hard time about it to this day because, yeah, I didn't, I got rejected from the internship. And then, yeah, and when that expert agent advisor told me a few months later to apply for the attorney position, I was like, Jay, they didn't hire me for an internship. Like, why are they going to hire me as a lawyer? Like, trust me. Like, you have a lot of knowledge now that you did not have several months ago. Like, apply. That's so funny. And I got it. Yeah. And then, so then they wind up having a record number of arbitration cases when you're there. 22 yeah. in one off season, which is crazy. And you sat in on all of them. So at that point, you probably have as much or more arbitration knowledge, pretty much anyone in the game except for maybe some of the other people at the union that have been involved in every single arbitration case which really I think um, is unique for somebody who wants to be an agent yeah I mean that again the arbitration process is so I mean I love it I geek out over it um, and I find it fascinating but it's most agents I mean even very seasoned agents if they never have to take a prior to hearing there's no way to really understand what it's about. And it's very, it's just a very unique process. Um, so getting to sit through, you know, 22, I mean, there's really, aside from any of the expert agent advisors, there's no other agent that's been through that many, but just because I had the benefit of being at the union for the year where we had the record number, um, you know, I got to, and then, you know, just getting to build out the database of the arbitration cases for, for Jay, um, by doing that, I, I got to go through every every arbitration case from both sides um, from the beginning of time, which was really cool to see how, you know, even way back in the day, like how they argued cases and then how it's kind of evolved and even how presentations have evolved, um, you know, in hearings and things like that. So it, it definitely gave me, um, you know, some sort of experience that, most agents don't have, which, you know, helped kind of make me an asset in a way. But then ultimately I decided, you know, I want to do this differently. And so I decided I wanted to, you know, start my own agency. We'll be back with more with agent Rachel Luba in just a moment. But a reminder, you can find all of the Chronicles baseball coverage, including our full A's coverage at sfchronicle.com. And to subscribe, Go to sfchronicle.com slash pod. So you, you decide after you work for the union, okay, I've seen enough agents in action. I know I can do this. How, how did you decide to strike out on your own? And what is it specifically that sets you apart? I, I know there have been a, a few other agencies that have done something sort of along your model. Um, but you really went in with the idea, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to tailor it to player needs uh and multiple player needs not just strictly um you yeah. know free agency and doing contracts yeah so i think i i mean when i was at the union i kind of saw the good the bad the ugly of um you know the agency world and i you know made me realize like i really can do this there's no reason i can't um but i also saw a lot of, you know i knew a lot of players and i saw I saw the way that, you know, agents advertised everything they offer, these full-service agencies, that they just really couldn't 
they didn't have the, you know, staff or the incentive to actually provide a lot of the services and abilities that they could. Um, and it just, the more and more I started thinking about it and, you know, thinking about the percentage that they're paying based on the contract that they really now, especially nowadays with analytics and stuff, is they're earning that almost on their own on the field. Um, there's a range of what an agent can negotiate and push that amount and, you know, unique ways to structure contracts. But ultimately, um, you know, the, the player is going to determine a large part of their value on the field. And so thinking about it, thinking about how the current model is set up, and then, you know, my background as an attorney and learning about billable hours and things like that, I started thinking more like, why can't um, an agency operate you know, more like a law firm and more with having kind of this idea of billable hours and you pay for the service that the agent's providing rather than for the value that the player, you know, himself is creating on the field. And so um, I talked to the union about it a bunch and they kind of just looked at it like, yeah, the industry's right for something like this. Because I thought, I was like, I must be missing something. Like, why hasn't this been done? And, you know, that's, that's an age-old question of, you know, why something hasn't been done. Is it because it can't be done? And a lot of times it's just because nobody's really had the incentive to go do it and um, or, you know, kind of the foresight. And so um, I ended up almost – I got offered a job at actually like a really big agency to be an agent. Um, and I, that was one of the hardest decisions to make because that was the first time finally somebody was going to pull the trigger and give me a chance, which is something I had been working for, for, you know, towards for years. And so, but the more I thought about it, I was like, I, I knew like a lot of the value and I felt like a lot of the value that they saw in me was the fact that I was a female and a part of me, a large part of me was like, you know, I, I don't feel like they truly, see me for the value that I really provide and that value is not being a female like that value is everything I can do in arbitration everything I can do with a player's contract everything I can do with you know analytics everything I can do with you know promoting players and um, helping them just all of these things that I didn't feel like they the agency as a whole really valued um, and so I kind of looked at it like all right if I'm like if I'm going to be anybody, I'm not going to be anybody's token female. Like, I'll just go be my own female, start my own agency. I think there's a better way to do it, a better way for players. And I think, you know, if I operate an agency this way, I can tailor fit my services to everything that a player wants. You know, if a player is very high maintenance and wants a lot of services and, and attention, like, they can get that. But if there's another player that, you know, really just wants to, you know, play baseball and then go home to his family, doesn't really want much in the media, any of that stuff, why are they going to pay the same, you know, percentage as, you know, a player like Trevor Bauer, who he does a lot, and that's great. But, you know, it's just, to me, that makes much more sense. So kind of decided to take a chance and, you know, go for it on my own. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I, I do know that there are certainly there are a few sort of li like yourself sort of agents with lawyer backgrounds who kind of piecemeal here and there have done specific services for right. fees. But I don't think any of the agencies, really big agencies, certainly work on that kind of deal. And I know you, you mentioned and then Trevor Bauer mentioned when I spoke to him um, that when he was at a bigger agency, he had at one point uh, given them like a five point plan about sort of marketing ideas and you know, other other way, you know, other sort of things away from just the please negotiate my arbitration deal this year kind of stuff. And they kind of right. they went like kind of like, oh, yeah, this is interesting, but nothing really got done. And so you did have to pitch to him. Yeah, you did have to pitch to him, even though you've, you've known him for a very long time. Uh, and he and his dad both kind of like the fact that you are you do want to do things like if a guy wants marketing, if a guy wants uh, to get into commercials or what have you, or want social media help or uh, anything like that. Those are things right. that you can provide, um, which uh, in this day and age, as, as Trevor said, like, look, a lot of these guys, the way baseball system works right now, they're probably not going to get the big payday. They're not going to, they might not even reach free agency. They're people that have to establish some value maybe off the field and this is a way to do it mm -hmm. and i really like that because as he said straight up you know baseball is losing its middle class which i think there is no doubt it's it's guys right now that are uh young and relatively inexpensive for teams and a handful of guys who are making big deals and there is not a lot in between right yep no i fully agree and i think that it's something that is lost upon the industry as a whole um the the value that can come from um you know from taking advantage of this time when when you are a professional athlete and you do have somewhat of a platform um you know we see with social media now just you can have a the the value that can come from having a platform can be super helpful in a variety of you know, different, different industries. And so, you know, all of these players, they're not going to be, unfortunately, they're not going to be able to be players, you know, forever. They're going to, there's going to come a time it, for some, it's going to come a lot sooner than up and for others, but where they have to move on to a second career and, you know, being able to establish yourself a lot of, you know, there's some, I've, have one client he really wants to go into um you know on field kind of broadcasting and stuff like that and like well listen when like establish your media presence now because it's going to be a lot easier to then pivot when you're when you retire to go into that field if you've already you know established yourself on social media to begin with so uh i think i think there's a lot that you know players can do nowadays um both on and off the field you know both using social media and analytics um and they can really you know put themselves in a whole different stop like stratosphere um for when you know for their playing days and for when they're done um and i think it's something that in general the industry is pretty behind on in catching up with yeah, for sure. And I'm so glad you're doing that because I've been telling guys for like honestly decades, like, look, if you are cooperative with the media 
and you're kind of like a go-to guy for the media, these are the kind of guys who wind up getting hired as broadcasters. And there's ever more demand, especially with specialist things like MLB Network and stuff like that. But if you're a jerk to the media or if you're a jerk on social media, if you get a bad reputation, these opportunities are not going to necessarily come your way uh, unless you are a superstar level player. So the thing that kind of makes me laugh is, like many people, uh, I found Trevor Bowers uh, persona on Twitter kind of grating you know he got himself in some, yeah. into some trouble he would fire back at people um, he got he came in for a lot of criticism for a couple different exchanges that I, I think are probably still up for debate um, but this last year since you've kind of steered him uh, toward a more re- reasonable sort of Twitter presence I was I, I found myself in the last year going like wait a minute do I agree with Trevor Bauer like, is, I, is he the voice of reason, especially during the pandemic? He had so yeah. many things uh, that he said that were really insightful and well-reasoned. And I thought, holy cow. And, and one of the reasons is you've worked with him quite a lot on social media. Uh, explain a little bit about how that came about. Yeah. Um, so I've seen his full, the full spectrum of where he's been on social media and what hit and the perception that he's had um, with the public. And I I always told him that the most important thing to me um, was that I don't care if people like him or not. I don't. I really don't. If if they know who Trevor is and they know, you know, he's a progressive thinker, he he really um, wants to play the game differently, and they don't like him because of that, that is totally fine. I'm totally cool with that. You don't have to like him. He's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But if you like, if you don't like him based on these ideas and these um, perceptions that so many people had that I would encounter all the time um, of him, if you don't like him because of that, that made that bothered me because I was like, that's not who Trevor is. And so what I found was, was you know, and and I've known this, you know, for ten years. Like in the beginning, the reason that people had these perceptions of him was because he would say the way he interacted on social media on Twitter. Um, he always used Twitter as this kind of escape. If you, his, his relationship with his dad, they have this uh, great banter. They always do back and forth and they love it. They love to banter with each other, but that's fine. But sometimes the problem is, is when you banter with people and trolls on social media, on Twitter, a lot of times, it doesn't necessarily come across the right way. You lose some of the maybe sarcasm or things like that. And so what was happening was he would, you know, have, he would get a rise out of, you know, bantering with trolls on Twitter and, you know, outsmarting them or outwitting them because he loves being witty. And he would end up, you know, what it kind of came across as like publicly humiliating these people because he had a, decent and enough size platform and so he got this bad reputation and it was never meant enough usually like everything he does it was never malicious but so then and then he started getting in trouble kind of with the media and they would twist things that he would say because and he would always have these kind of clickbaity um sound bites and then he started getting frustrated with that and all this stuff and the more i started analyzing like what he was doing I know it was like an escape and an outlet for him because all he had was baseball and then he would use that as an outlet. And I started, you know, the more and more I thought about it, I was like, all right, 
everything he does, there's a purpose to. And this is what I told him. I was like, Trevor, everything you do, he, he's, um, you know, he went to school. He was a mechanical engineer major. Um, he thinks like a mechanical engineer. There's a purpose for everything. There's a purpose for everybody that's in his life. There is a purpose for how he trains. There's a purpose for how he eats. There's purpose for everything. The one part of it in his life that there was no purpose to was Twitter. He just tweeted that it was like an, it was just to blow off steam. And I was like, this is this is detrimental to you because <laughs> it, it's having a huge impact in what you do. This isn't just some, you know, um, meaningless, you know, outlet. This, this shapes a lot of your future on the field, you know, how the media treats you, all these things. And as he started to grow an interest for, you know, having businesses and uh, running, yeah, running his own companies, he started to realize, like, okay, this does matter. And so it came down to, like, we have to reshape the way the, you know, public perceives you. And that's going to start with you need to now use utilize social media with a purpose like you every time you tweet what's the purpose of that tweet you know there has to be a purpose and that's a that's a hard thing for people who use social media in just a very uh, you know i don't know kind of recreational way it's a hard thing to you know change but he i think he's done a great job at it yeah he really has and he's funny he said like i'm really hard-headed the first four or five times she told me i needed to change that i was like no way and then like the sixth time i said okay which made me laugh but you know there was the perception kind of like you said like he he was some sort of bully and i mentioned that to him and he said you know what that really hurt me because i was bullied a lot as a kid to the point where i actually had to change schools Mm -hmm. um you know he was seen as a sexist a bully and he was like i am not those things you know, and I, you know, I like he and I talked about it because sometimes somebody jumps into your timeline and criticizes you and you think like this person jumped into my Twitter feed and is going off on me. Yeah. That gives me the right to then go off on them. And I've been there. I think a lot of people have been there. Um, yeah. But it's yeah, you have to be more restrained when you're somebody as as high profile and with stakes and and, and uh, you know, even even a, even a small fry, you know, we kind of kind of get it think about these things right so, yeah no, he's he was like he was bullied in high school it, the stories that his mom will tell uh they'll make anyone cry like it breaks my heart um and you know, we went to stevenson i went to stevenson through you know kindergarten through uh high school and i will say one of the the best qualities about that school i always thought was just the inclusiveness you know and the fact that it was cool to be smart at, you know when i was there like it was cool to you know to want to do well in school and he'll tell you the exact opposite for him it was Mm. like the fact that he liked chess the fact that he liked math he was in the math club um he was you know bullied for it by you know the baseball players um he he didn't fit into the jock group he didn't fit into the um you know math club group because he was a jock um it, it was hard for him growing up was hard and so he never wants people he, I, he's ne- he never does anything maliciously but sometimes because he has such a big platform if somebody says something mean to him to get attention and he responds suddenly he's responded and usually he responds with something witty he's now humiliated them on a mass platform yeah. whereas when they said when the you know thousands of people saying mean things to him 
she's the only one who sees it. Him, him and maybe their three other followers. <laughs> but when he says something in return, it's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people now see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. And he's, you know what, kudos to him for having turned that around. Um, certainly my impressions of him has changed. So, um, and he's the talk, he's the talk of this winter. It's obviously, um, we understand you're not going to tell us where, what team he is going to or who you're talking to right now, but, um, he is the hottest free agent as well. He should be the reigning Cy Young winner in the National League. Um, but it's such a weird off season. You and I chatted about this. It's the pandemic off season. How do you kind of see things this off season? I think everyone out there understands he is still going to get a full value contract because of his talents and abilities. But it is a weird winter. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird winter for sure. Um, I think it's going to be it's going to be weird for a lot of players. Um, I think luckily he is, and he's set himself apart. Um, enough, thankfully, this off season that you know he's kind of in a different caliber, and so I would say the normal, um, you know, kind of tough situation that most teams will try to portray being in. Um, you know, we haven't really seen that with him just because he's, you know, he he's in this different kind of category. Um, so luckily I think players that are in that category are going to do okay, but, um, it's going to be, it's going to be strange for, for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It is. Now you've all, you're also representing Yasiel Puig, who has, I'm sure all our listeners know yes, who Yasiel Puig is, um, particularly in the Bay area from, <laughs> since he was such a frequent opponent against the giants. Um, what do you mm-hmm. see maybe as his market? He, he, like Trevor has occasionally been controversial. Yeah, but one of the things that really um, kind of sparked my interest with him, too, is in a lot of ways he's similar to Bauer and that I think he's very misunderstood. Um, you know, he plays with passion and heart, and, I mean, no one, very few players play with as much passion as he does out there. And I think, you know, unfortunately, he initially it was not perceived the right way and a lot of people didn't like it because of how he played out there um but i think luckily in just this past year the game has really changed and i think bauer has had a lot to do with that as well he's really pushed the people and the players to like show personality to have fun because he really believes in that um but it's really cool to see you know just think about this past season Think about one season before this, in 2019, in the postseason, in the World Series, you had Bregman carry his bat to first base, and he had to apologize for that. That was, like, disrespectful. Um, fast forward, you know, a year, and we have the 2020 season. And think about how much personality was out there. I mean, you've got bat flips, you've got all sorts of stuff, and no more apologizing for it. Like, the game is changing, and this this time is now perfect for Yasiel. I mean, he fit, this is his game. He He's one of, you know, of kind of the modern era. He's one of the original guys that really plays with personality and doesn't apologize for it. And, you know, the, the fans love him. Baseball, I really do believe, needs Puig in it. it. You know, the game is better with him here. So 
Yeah. I, I, he's I, one of those guys who watches at bats no matter what's happening. He's a guy that you want to yeah. keep an eye on for sure in a game. So Absolutely. Well, an exciting winner for you, Rachel Luba. It's always fun to talk to somebody from Northern California, particularly Monterey. So we wish you a lot of continued success. And I'm sure I will be trying to uh, pick your brain uh, from time to time on various free agents as, as you go forward in your career. Thanks so much for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. Our thanks again to Rachel Luba for joining us on A's Plus. You can follow her on Twitter at Agent Rachel Luba. Our producers today were King Kaufman and G. Allen Johnson. We will be back again next week with more A's Plus. Thanks for listening.